As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, the winners of Tuesday's primaries range from new progressive challengers to some of the most extreme Republicans yet. And later, we talk to one of the night's big winners, Democrat Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, who will be running for Senate against MAGA Republican Ted Budd in November. And speaking of candidates in big races, next Tuesday on Pod Save America, we will be joined by Los Angeles mayoral candidate and longtime California Congresswoman Karen Bass right here in studio. And if you live in California, this Monday is the deadline to register or update your registration online and still have your primary day ballot mailed to you. But just in case you forget, no worries. California also has same day in-person registration. You can find out more at votesaveamerica.com slash California. Also, check out this week's Pod Save the World, where Tommy's joined by Palestinian writer and journalist Jalal Abukader to discuss the killing of beloved Palestinian-American reporter Shireen Abu Akleh uh, and the violence he witnessed by Israeli police at Shireen's funeral. Uh, Dan, I believe there's also a brand new political experts react out this week. Who do you got? Well, John, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, we have a new episode of Political Experts React where we are breaking down midterm ads that went viral with Crooked Media's own chief content officer, Tanya Sominator. What? Yes, I know. Amazing. You got Tanya again. Heart like hardest booking we've had. We nailed her down. We got it. And we look at ads from Dr. Oz awkwardly holding a gun. A really uh, interesting and I think successful piece of viral content from Midas Touch. And some really uh, MAGA Michael Bay vibe ads from an Ohio congressional candidate. So check it out. Go over to YouTube.com slash Crooked Media. Watch the video. And obviously, smash that subscribe button. If you haven't watched Political Experts React uh, yet, you are missing out. Because Dan Pfeiffer is a YouTube sensation. It is it is one of our more popular most one of our most popular video products. Not one of Crooked Media. Not one of. I, I am Read I am my like, writer. It is not I'm one thinking, of I'm thinking of doing an offline episode soon on why Dan Pfeiffer is the most popular YouTube star of his generation. Well, that would that would be a very short episode because <laughs> I think it's self-evident. But here's here's what you need to know about political expert react. If you watch three episodes and you smash the subscribe button, you become a political expert. So that is why well, it's that's popular. it. That's it, and maybe maybe you get a free copy of Battling the Big Lie. No, I, I just you do not. You, but, yeah. 
Hey, are you buying? Are you are you are you doing a bulk buy of my book? I'm paying for this. Yes. If you want, if you want a copy, if times are tough, inflation is high, and you want a copy of Battle of the Glide, reach out to John Favreau on Twitter. He will buy you one if you can prove you watch Political Experts React. There we go. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to promote all your content. We need all the help we can get, John. We are in the final stretch here. All right, let's get to the news. Tuesday was the biggest set of midterm primaries yet, with voters selecting Democratic and Republican nominees in North Carolina, Oregon, Kentucky, Idaho, and Pennsylvania, the perennial swing state which featured the most consequential races of the evening. We're going to talk about all the results, but let's start with the race for Pennsylvania governor, where Attorney General Josh Shapiro won the Democratic nomination after running unopposed and winning his last two statewide campaigns by convincing margins in 2016 and 2020. He will face one of the most extreme candidates to ever run for governor in America. State Senator Doug Mastriano, who wanted to throw out the votes of millions of Pennsylvanians in 2020, helped organize the January 6th rally in D.C. and was caught on video breaching the barricades set up by the Capitol Police. Dan, how did Mastriano beat a crowded Republican field and why should we lose sleep over this particular election? Well, there are, I think there are two reasons he won. The first one is perhaps the most concerning, which is that there is a very strong, very clear plurality in the Republican primary electorate for the most aggressive, the most pugilistic, ethno-nationalist, authoritarian, big lie believer they can find. That is what the Republican primary electorate wants. They also have a very good bullshit detector for who says it and who believes it. And Mastrano absolutely clearly believes it. And they are willing to put aside sanity, corruption, electability, anything else for the person that they think will, much like they, Donald Trump 2016, stand up against the thing they fear most, which is the idea that their version of America, a white, straight, Christian version, is under assault from change, right? Progress. And whoever will stand up against that is who they want. Whether the elites think they're going to win, whether they are corrupt, whether they really believe you know, whether they are true, you know, adopt other parts of sort of this Christian nationalist uh, ethos that Mastriano has, they will take that person. The other reason is more tactical and I think leads to a different conversation, which is Josh Shapiro's campaign identified Mastriano as the candidate they would most like to run against. Mastriano did not have a ton of money at the outset, spent very little money on paid media and mail. So Mastriano's campaign ran about $800,000 of ads in mail attacking Mastriano as the candidate most like Trump, the biggest Trump supporter, the one Trump wanted most, which was free advertising for Mastriano and helped lift him in the primary. Is that the only reason he won? Is that the main reason he won? It's impossible to say, but it is. it was certainly was a contributing factor that Josh Shapiro's campaign inserted themselves in that primary to help select their opponent. I saw this. Someone asked Josh Shapiro's campaign about this, and they said that by the time they ran those ads, he was it was clear Mastriano was ahead in the polls. And what they were trying to do was start the general election early to remind people as early as possible and start educating people as early as possible about how extreme Mastriano is. And the other thing is, of course, he did get that. You know, they said he's most like Trump. He was the one who got the Trump endorsement. Yeah, he got it late. He got late. it late. Yeah. Like, yeah. given what Mastriano won by and just how terrible the other candidates in the field were, it's possible he and perhaps even probable he would have won absent that. But it did create this like news cycle that very much helped Mastriano, which is a bunch of people see ads saying he's pro-Trump, then he's rising in the polls, Republicans start 
panicking about it, which becomes when, when the Republican establishment says this candidate is unelectable or too MAGA-like or too Trump-like, that actually becomes like that reinforces their bona fides with the MAGA base. And so whether it's the reason or not, I do not know, but it is it, it was part it's part of the story of why he won for sure. But this guy is this guy is scary. I realize there's a lot of hyperbole out there. This guy, he he fits all of the uh, the most dire warnings about him. He is an extreme Christian nationalist who has said that he believes God is using him to change history. That is what Doug Mastriano said. If he becomes governor, the 13 million Americans who live in Pennsylvania do not get to choose the president in 2024. Doug Mastriano gets to choose the president in 2024. He was bragging just today about how if he gets elected, he gets to decertify election machines. He gets to appoint a secretary of state that will be compliant to do whatever he wants. If Donald Trump runs and doesn't win in 2024, doesn't win fairly in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano will just overturn the election in that state. He will push the legislature to uh, appoint their own series of Trump electors. And so he gets to choose the president in 2024. Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes are off the table if Doug Mastriano wins in 2022. That's how serious it is. If if democracy is not your issue, um, Doug Mastriano becomes governor. You're one of the tens of thousands of women who have a pregnancy with complications that may threaten your life. The state of Pennsylvania will condemn you to death because of Doug Mastriano. Uh, because he thinks that you should die because he wants to criminalize all abortion with no exception for rape, incest, or the health or life of the mother. Uh, Again, he says this is his sincere religious belief. He thinks it's okay to prevent gay couples from adopting a child. He wants to mandate the teaching of the Bible in public schools. He's attended QAnon events. He's attended events held by a religious cult that believes, quote, they have been tasked with battling real-world demons who control global leaders. This is the fucking guy that uh, Republicans have nominated in the state of Pennsylvania. Endorsed by the leader of their party, Donald J. Trump. Republican Mar-a-Lago. I mean, again, just to get a sense of how extreme this guy is, the Republican Governors Association, uh, not a bunch of libs over in the Republican (laughs) Governors Association, um, they released a very tepid statement about Mastriano's win right after he clinched the nomination. Uh, And the only thing that the statement really said was, quote, Republican voters have chosen him. (laughs) (laughs) That's all they could say about him. Um, Some Republican officials in Pennsylvania have told reporters that they might endorse Shapiro, uh, who most political analysts now say is the slight favorite in the governor's race, uh, even though the Senate race, which we're going to talk about in a second, is rated as a toss up. Um, because the political environment is so tough for Democrats, but because Mastriano is so extreme, the, it, this is this race is rated as lean Democrat. What do you think, Dan? Like, does Shapiro have the slight edge here, and and should he be running a race where he's trying to pick off Republicans? Well, I, first, I want to say let's be very clear about the Republican Governors Association. This is not <laughs> about the fact that they think Doug Mastriano is dangerous. They just think he's not necessarily electable and they don't want to put they don't want to waste money on an unelectable candidate. So what they're going to do is they're going to wait and they're going to look at the polls. And if the polls are close and they think they have a shot, they will 100 percent lock solid guarantee invest in that race. It is just like every Republican with Trump when they were like in 2016, we're just going to stand back, you know, after the access Hollywood tape, we're not going to endorse him. And then once they thought it was close, they got behind him again. So let's not they're not getting any profiles and courage award for that tepid statement. 
And I think the same thing is going to be gone for a bunch of Republican elected officials in Pennsylvania. We should not presume that they're going to do the right thing here unless it becomes patently obvious that Mastriano can't win. If he can win, right. they're going to be behind him. Mm-hmm. Now, that is the, the most important thing to know here is I do think it is true that Shapiro has a slight edge for sure. He's a good candidate. Mastriano was not a good candidate. He, because of Mastriano's incredibly extreme stances, he has a a larger set of the electorate is available to him. Mastrano is the kind of candidate who can push some of the Republicans and independents who supported Biden, but are thinking about a Republican back into this camp. But we should be clear that Mastrano can win this race. Shapiro is at best a slight favorite. Yeah. And so it is very, very possible. Like this is not one we cannot be complacent about. We should be fully prepared that if we do not do everything possible, we will have someone as dangerous as Mastrano as the governor of this state. And so like in terms of strategy, yes, he should reach out to Republicans. He shouldn't do it at the expense of trying to turn out the Democratic base. The Republicans he should be looking for are the Republicans who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and voted for a Democrat in the House or the Senate in 2018. That is the universe of Republicans I think he should be looking for. Yeah, I mean, just so everyone's clear how difficult this year is going to be. um, Pennsylvania voted to the right of the country in 2020 by like what three four points joe biden wins the popular vote by about four points wins pennsylvania by one point so if we have a midterm where the you know national vote republicans are 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 tied or ahead or whatever now imagine pennsylvania three to four points to the right and you realize how even a candidate with a slight edge like josh shapiro is going to have an uphill climb uh just because of the overall political environment I do think that, you know, Shapiro was out with a message about Mastriano um, the night of the primary. He released a statement. I thought it was a pretty strong message to start with. He said Mastriano wants to dictate how Pennsylvanians live their lives. That's not freedom. Real freedom comes when we trust Pennsylvanians to make their own decisions about who they love, who they pray to, and how and when they start a family. I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah. You You know, know, it it tells me that Josh Shapiro watches Pot Save America. He's, I mean, he's been on. He's he's down, the, he's no one else has thought of that other than us. So, yes. <laughs> no, but it, it is the it is the type of message um, that both, I think, you know, as our, our friend Anat uh, Shankar Osorio always says, excites the base, but also persuades the middle. Like, I think that is a um, that's a it's a very good message. So the Senate race, we now have a Democratic nominee in Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who won a landslide victory on Tuesday night while recovering from a stroke. Uh, He took nearly 60 percent of the vote, while Congressman Connor Lamb got 26 percent and State Rep Malcolm Kenyatta got 10 percent. Some pundits are saying uh, this was an important ideological battle between the more progressive Fetterman and the more moderate Lamb. Uh, Others have pointed to Fetterman's near universal name ID, his style, even his sweatshirt, sweatshort aesthetic. Um, (laughs) The Atlantic's David Graham had my favorite line. He wrote that Fetterman, quote, looks like he was hacked together from spare parts in an oil-streaked Pittsburgh chopper garage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you think? What do you think is going on with Fetterman? I mean, the idea that this was some sort of major ideological clash in the party between the left and the center is absurd. I think it is fair to say that Connor Lamb was a more attitudinally moderate candidate. And Fetterman endorsed Bernie Sanders is, uh, you know, for and very aggressively for uh, legalizing marijuana, even put a flag, a legalized marijuana flag above uh, where the lieutenant governor works. 
But in the end of the day, I don't think any voter looked at this from an ideological perspective, right? They looked at it from which candidate they wanted to fight for them and which candidate they thought could win. And Fetterman came in this with a gigantic advantage, as was pointed out. He had 100% name ID. He had run statewide. Connor Lamb had been in the House for like a hot second. No one knew who he was. And so we we never even got to the ideological. I don't think it would have been an ideological, but we never even got to that because Fetterman came in this with such an advantage. And there was no real argument against Fetterman. It's hard to say, like as Connor Lamb super PAC did, that Fetterman can't win statewide when he has won statewide, right? So it becomes very, it was like he was he's a good margins. Yeah, by huge margins. Yeah, he's done he's done very well and he's done well in the exact parts of the state where Democrats have been losing. So he like he had an electability argument, he had the enthusiasm of the base. It was uh, a pretty overwhelming win for Fetterman. Again, I know it's difficult for all of us highly engaged partisans who live on Twitter to imagine that a lot of voters don't approach the race via ideological positioning and even issue positioning. But it happens. That's the way that voters are. Um, and look, Fetterman is, is, he is more progressive than Lamb for sure. He doesn't fit neatly into any categories, even if you go by his issue positions, right? Like he, he, he supported Bernie in 16. Um, he, uh, but for $15 minimum wage, very pro-union, legalizing weed, very pro-choice, no corporate money. But then he opposes mask mandates, wants to keep Title 42, supports fracking, even though he supports the rest of the climate agenda from Democrats, right? So like he is sort of, he's an interesting political figure in the positions that he holds. Um, I was listening to uh, Sarah Longwell's podcast. She is a, a never Trumper. She does a lot of focus groups. And she was doing focus groups of Pennsylvania voters leading up until the primary. She said that originally, you know, she's a never Trumper and she thought that Conor Lamb would be the stronger candidate. Um, Then she sat in a bunch of focus groups and she said that John Fetterman is the only candidate that she has heard voters uh, enthusiastic about all cycle. (laughs) Like she couldn't believe the enthusiasm from from Pennsylvanians, mostly Democrats, of course, about about uh, John Fetterman. But then she also said he's the only candidate who some of the Trump voters and her Trump groups that she's talked to said that they would consider voting for, partly because he looks like he could be a Trump voter. <laughs> John Fetterman, like, let's be honest, you know, I mean, the Connor Lamb Super PAC ran all these ads saying that um, that Fetterman was a silver spoon socialist. Like, <laughs> I don't even, first of all, I don't even know what that means. John Fetterman doesn't look like a silver spoon socialist, you know, like and you see this like, you know, we're going to talk about David McCormick, who's potentially one of his opponents. McCormick was on Laura Ingram the other night and he's like, well, you know, he's got this look, but the guy has a trust fund and he went to Harvard like he's he's trying. They they realize that John Fetterman's style, his appearance, how he you know, how he does politics is a threat um, because you know, you can you can get away with a lot more when you have that kind of style. Well, it's also just the thing with everyone should imprint in their brain is that identity trumps ideology, right? It is people identify with parts of John Fetterman, who he is, where he's from, who he's going to fight for is more. But they're not like looking at him on some sort of, you know, National Journal vote scale of what he supports. He he looks he and his look helps him because he seems like an outsider. Yeah. And that, if there's one thing voters have told us over and over and over again, is they want an outsider, right? Whether that is Barack Obama, that is Donald Trump, that is across the board what people want as an outsider. And John Fetterman, even though he is sitting in lieutenant governor's office, is clearly, by every part of his life story, in his appearance, and his personal demeanor, and his 
in, a, in his ideologically complicated policy agenda is not a traditional politician. And that is to his tremendous advantage in this primary and in the general election. An outsider, but someone who also seems Pennsylvanian to his core. Yeah. <laughs> and at a time of extreme economic distress uh, that a lot of people are feeling, particularly because of inflation, who focuses almost exclusively on economic populism. Right. In, in a state where, you know, very much and, and goes to Trump country and goes to rural areas in Pennsylvania and talks to voters about and, and with and brings a very economically populist message, like, which which works, which works. So let's talk about the Republican primary uh, in Pennsylvania. Still let's undecided. Looking forward Still to this. undecided as of this recording. I was concerned that that might change by the end of this recording, but it still looks like they got a ways to go uh, to count in ballots here. Um, so out of more than a million ballots cast, New Jersey resident Dr. Mehmet Oz is ahead of Connecticut resident David McCormick. <laughs> I think it, again, it's Thursday morning. It's like around 1,000 votes now. That's all I'm going to say. It's around 1,000 votes. Uh, they are still counting mail-in ballots, uh, for which Republicans, of course, have a, a newfound affection for counting <laughs> mail ballots. So they're trying to count all the mail ballots. There's some provisional ballots here and there. There's a couple counties where there's still ballots they're counting. So they're, they got some work to do. Um, Donald Trump who endorsed Dr. Oz, has obviously encouraged him to just declare victory because, quote, it makes it much harder for them to cheat with the ballots that they just happened to find. Um, meanwhile, Kathy Barnett, a right-wing extremist who's compared Muslims to Satan and, and gay people to criminals, came in third with 25% of the vote despite a late polling surge uh, that suggested she might win. So the polls before Election Day had McCormick comfortably in third. They had Barnett surging. What do you think happened? I think it's possible that horse race polling has reached the level of statistical alchemy. <laughs> like maybe it just means nothing. <laughs> like, and we should prim, primary polling, especially, is um, is not always as reliable as general election polling, which, as we've also seen, is not that reliable. Can, <laughs> yes. can be not that reliable as well. But especially primary polling is tough. I mean, it's hard to know. Did, I mean, the race clearly was moving pretty quickly, right? Barnett went from almost nothing to it, like, I mean, there, we have a huge, we have like a fruit from a poison tree problem because all of our comparisons here <laughs> are other polls. But if you look at the aggregate of the limited, obviously flawed polling we have, Barnett went from clearly nothing to very much in the, in the mix to a massive amount of scrutiny on her, some pretty powerful right, right wing figures attacking her and so maybe she went up and she came down and some of that went to McCormick, but that doesn't make a ton of sense. The McCormick thing doesn't also doesn't fit within the normal or the the way we sort of have understood polling misses recently, which is we're undercounting MAGA voters. But, you know, McCormick is probably less of a MAGA voter, like less of a candidate for MAGA voters than Barnett and Oz, who has the endorsement of Trump, but they're all kind of MAGA. So. Who knows? Who knows? I think there was an argument to say that media organizations should stop doing horse race polling full stop because, yeah. like, what's the point? And it's almost always wrong. So I saw someone uh, who knows Pennsylvania tweeting that sometimes these polls uh, discount primary polls, discount normie Republicans, the, the few that are left. And David McCormick certainly might be the candidate of more. You know, this, the tip, the Mitt Romney voters, right? The people who are somehow still Republican uh, that are like more suburban voters. Like, it's hard to know. I guess if like the way that that could work and not that anyone other than you and I talking about this care, but I guess everyone will have to listen is the, <laughs> like 
the screen is interesting, right? So is it people who Republicans who voted for Biden in 20 who or did not vote in a Republican primary in 18? Those people aren't super uh, engaged. Maybe they don't pick up the phone when a pollster calls, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only that's a positive. It's a theory. Or it's just all wrong and broken. And it could could, be like broken clock. It's broken in all different ways. 100 percent. All right. You're John Fetterman. Uh, would you rather face in the general David McCormick or Dr. Oz? And how would you run against each of them? I've, we've been sort of having this ongoing conversation about who would you want to run against between Oz and McCormick. And I think it's kind of a tough call. I think Fetterman is a very strong contrast against both because, as you point out, he is Pennsylvania through and through. He has populist working class roots from being Mayor Braddock, his policy agenda, and he's running against a millionaire celebrity doctor from New Jersey and a billionaire hedge fund guy from Connecticut. Either one of those is a good contrast. I tend to think, and I think Fetterman is probably the slightest of favorites against either for those reasons, slightest of favorites, right? He's like, like a little bit closer to lean Democrat than like right on the nose of toss up. But the thing I worry about with McCormick, who is, I want to be very clear, a historically shitty candidate. He is just like evidence that if you have enough money, you can buy enough votes to potentially win a nomination. Like he has no charisma, no presence. He just he might as well be wearing a T-shirt that says hedge fund billionaire country club like he is terrible. But what he now has is that not only did Trump endorse Oz, he aggressively opposed McCormick. And that is going to give, I think, McCormick some Glenn Youngkin moderate credentials that his policy agenda does not warrant. But the fact that Trump opposed him, I think, could create a permission structure for some of the voters that we need who supported Democrats in 18 and 20, but we're going to need in 2022 to stick with us. And so you can see it. Like there is a world where you get some, I think, Shapiro McCormick voters because McCormick will be seen as moderate, not because he is actually moderate, but because Donald Trump doesn't like him. I will say that I am hopeful that John Fetterman and his campaign have learned the lesson from uh, Terry McAuliffe's race against Glenn Youngkin, uh, because I am already hearing a bunch of journalists say, oh, maybe McCormick's the next Glenn Youngkin and he can act like a suburban soccer dad and and win those voters who you were just talking about, some of these suburban voters who voted for who were Republicans or independents who voted for Biden in 2020. Again, I think running against David McCormick as just, you know, don't call him fucking David McTrumpick or whatever, the fuck <laughs> they, you know, like he's not he's not people aren't going to believe that this guy is Donald Trump. Um, and, and for good reason, if Donald Trump has been attacking him for the last couple months. Yes, his wife, Dina Powell, worked in the Trump administration, uh, you know, a, a big hero. She worked in the Trump administration, quietly said things anonymously to reporters about how it was horrible, never spoke out, left to go make a lot of money at Goldman Sachs, and uh, then joined her husband's fake MAGA campaign. So good. <laughs> she's a hero. But anyway, so, so but, but what David McCormick is, is a million, multimillionaire hedge fund guy from Connecticut who you know, ship jobs overseas and manage money for China, right? He's like Mitt Romney on steroids. So run against that. Like, John, it's, I think that's actually a great contrast for John Fetterman, who was this like working class, grassroots, economic populist from Pennsylvania. And David McCormick is, is surely not. I think the Oz one, the Oz comparison is a little different. Like, 
Dr. Oz is like an out-of-state quack celebrity, right? <laughs> so yeah, and those, and those out-of-state quack, quack celebrities never get elected to anything. So it's fine. <laughs> right. I would not worry about yeah, that. A, that one's almost, in the bag. It's <laughs> yes. a little hard. There is that, there's that great picture of him that, um, that McCormick's been using in his ads against Oz of Oz uh, kissing his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, <laughs> which I, I would definitely be using that a lot. But look, no, I, what, what you were just joking about, obviously, is Donald Trump. I do not think... Dr. Oz is as smooth as Donald Trump <laughs> or no. has necessarily the same appeal as Donald Trump. No. Um, I think he is a little a little stiffer than that. Though he is, I think, you know, I, I've seen him on the campaign trail. I've seen him at these debates. He's a lot smoother um, than some of his Republican opponents. He's a good communicator. He's been on TV forever. So Fetterman does have to deal with that. Yeah, you don't want to... I. Like, I think you can argue either way which one you would rather run against, and both of them are going to be very tough because of the political environment and the nature of the state. Yeah. The Oz thing is I think you don't want to discount two parts of him, which is one, media savvy and celebrity are very helpful attributes in this yeah, of course. campaign. Absolutely. And in fact, it has benefited Fetterman in great ways because Fetterman is a celebrity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. not at the level of Dr. Oz, but – he has been on the cover of magazines and featured on TV because of his appearance and his story and like being the mayor of this this town. Uh, you know, he would come to the White House as his mayor of the small town because he was a celebrity mayor. And yeah. the other thing is, I think Oz is going to have now. Why ne- neither of them are traditional politicians? Oz has a little bit more outsider. Um, cred, I think, in like a relationship with the voters, right? He's been on TV their whole lives. He's been sitting next to Oprah. It's good. I think it's going to be a little, he's less of a blank slate. McCormick is a blank slate that Fetterman can define. But I think either one of these are going to, there are advantages for Fetterman. I think he's a, the exact right candidate to run against both of them, but it, it's a tough race in a tough state and a really, as of right now, at least pretty shitty political environment. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Okay, beyond the two big Pennsylvania races, we have a few more takeaways to talk about from Tuesday. North Carolina was the other big swing state to hold primaries. Uh, The race to replace retiring Senator Richard Burr will feature former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who I'll be talking to in a bit, and the Trump-endorsed Congressman Ted Budd, who crushed the 14-candidate primary field, including the more moderate former Governor Pat McCrory. Another Trump-backed candidate, 26-year-old Bo Hines, won the crowded primary for North Carolina's 13th congressional district. But in the 11th district... Another Trump-endorsed 26-year-old, who we've all come to know and love, lost his primary, which means that at the end of this year, Madison Cawthorn will have to go looking for coke-fueled orgy invites somewhere else. Um, (laughs) Dan, let's start with the Senate race. Ted Budd versus Sherry Beasley, rated lean Republican. Um, How should Beasley run against this uh, Trumpy goober? Well, I think the lean Republican is the right rating as of right now. We just have to, we should be very clear and very honest that winning in states that Joe Biden won in 2020 in a better political environment is going to be tough. Winning in states that Trump won is going to be much harder. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's impossible. And I think Sherry Beasley is an excellent candidate. 
I, I've been trying to think about what, like how I would approach it or how I would think about that race if I was involved with it. And I think the perhaps the best way to do it, you have to think is in order to win, you're going to have to upend everything that is happening in politics and has happened in North Carolina in a state Democrats have not won at the federal level since 2008, right? We have lost Senate races. We lost the presidential in 12, 16, 20. And so that means you need a high variance strategy, right? High risk. And the way, and I think Ted Budd is kind of irrelevant to that strategy. Like whether it was Ted, like Pat McCrory would have been an easier candidate to run against because the people of North Carolina hate him. But Ted Budd is just generic ultra mega extremist to use a, a favorite phrase of our current president. But the way that I think to think about it is you have to change the electorate in that state. You're going to have to register a ton of voters. You're going to have to turn out people who did not turn out in 2016 or 2020. And that I think that requires a the two campaigns that have sort of adopted that strategy recently are Stacey Abrams in Georgia in 2018 and Beto O'Rourke in Texas in 2018. Now, the challenge of that strategy is should be noted by the fact that the two people I suggested did not win with that strategy, but they came closer than people have come in those states in a long time. And that means you are focused intently on registering voters in the parts of the state that have large pockets of Democratic voters, in North Carolina, particularly Black voters and Latino voters. But also you are going to every part of the state. And what you're trying to do is go to like the counties that Tom Tillis beat Let's say Tom Tillis beat um, Cal Cunningham by 20 points in, right? And under the normal political formula, you would not waste your time to go there. But what you have to do if you have any chance of winning is you want to go take that margin. You want to show up. You want to persuade people. You want to take that margin from losing by 20 points to losing by 15 points or 13 points. If you do that enough places, you can get this thing close enough to win. And so I think it is a reach out to every voter everywhere. Focus on your story, yourself. I don't think you're going to Given how North Carolina has voted recently, you're, you're not going to convince people that Ted Budd is worse than the Donald Trump they voted for two years ago or worse than the Tom Tillis they voted for two years ago. And so I think it's going to have to be all about her and her story and running in parts of the state that Democrats have not really campaigned aggressively in since probably Obama in 2008. I think that's right. I think to the extent that you do have a message about your opponent, which she will obviously have, and she, you know previewed it with me during our interview um i think it's to sort of define ted budd as outside of even the the typical republican mainstream that north carolinians uh have voted for the people from north carolina have voted for over the last i mean like even when even with trump ted budd voted against all pandemic relief even even the trump bills the trump pandemic relief (laughs) um which i think is probably not popular and of course then he he voted to overturn the election um which we know because of his vote and also because uh, he was one of the people who texted Mark Meadows that uh, George Soros rigged the election and rigged all the machines. So Ted Budd is way out there, <laughs> which gives you some fodder. But I agree that that's a sort of a limited strategy. You really have to talk about yourself in a state like North Carolina. Um, you got any parting words for Madison Cawthorn? I just want to say I'm sorry to Ma- Madison Cawthorn. He does the right thing. He blows the whistle on this coke fueled GOP orgy circuit. And they come after him. That is, it's the price of doing the right thing, and he lost his job for it. You blew, yeah, emphasis on the word "blow," huh? <laughs> just, let's just be myself. clear that let's myself. just be clear that given all of the possible puns I could have made, the cocaine one was the most appropriate for this quasi-family <laughs> podcast we have right here. I will just say, God, 
I read this very lengthy Politico profile about Madison Cawthorn from the other week, and it made me feel, I don't want to say sympathy for him, but like, this is someone who is clearly struggling, and I actually like hope he gets help because he is in a, I think he's in a pretty dark place. And it's uh, it's it's pretty ugly what he's gone through. Um, all right. Another Trump candidate whose loss on Tuesday uh, should come as a relief to all of us was Idaho Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeechan, who once delivered a speech at a white nationalist event and took a picture with the right wing militia. Uh, Idaho's current Republican governor, Brad Little, no liberal, very, very conservative, very Trumpy, uh, beat her handily. But Trump did have quite a few wins on Tuesday, and there were quite a few other extreme Republicans who won their primaries besides Mastriano. Dan, anyone in particular you think we should be watching out for? You know, I, in anticipation of this question, I went through all the results to try to find like the one person who was like, other than Mastriano, right, who was super scary. And you know what the takeaway is? They're all bad. Yeah. Sometimes the slightly less bad version defeated the terrible version, but across the board, if there there is no one running against Trump, there's no never Trumper, there's no current version of Mitt Romney. It's all a question, you know, there's no one who disbelieves or pushes back against the big lie. It is just all bad. It is all MAGA. It's all extreme everywhere, right? And that is the thing. That's the thing that's scary, that whether the person who won the nomination and potentially ends up in Congress or the Senate or the governor's office is someone who truly believes to their core all the Republican conspiracy theories, like Doug Mastriano, or someone who pretends to believe them because that's what it takes to get elected, like Dr. Oz or David McCormick or anyone else. The result is the same once they get there because all of the political momentum, all the political incentives push towards this dangerous conduct. Like, I don't, let's say Lou Barletta, who was one of the people who ran against Mastrano, had won. The amount, I would not feel that much safer if we were at, with Lou Barletta in office and Doug Mastriano, when if push came to shove on the 2024 election and whether they're going to send their electors, right? You can't. There's no Republican you can send that should make you feel good about the state of democracy right now. You look across this field of candidates, all of them on Tuesday. You don't see any Liz Cheney's or Adam Kinzinger's or Mitt Romney's in nope. in this field of people. You see people who maybe didn't get Trump's endorsement, but then because they didn't get Trump's endorsement, tried to act as Trumpy as possible to then beat the person who did get Trump's endorsement. That's the dynamic right here, and w- because the parties become so radicalized. All right, finally, there were four other Democratic primaries on Tuesday that featured competitive races between progressive and center-left candidates for U.S. House seats. Uh, it looks like each wing of the party won two. In North Carolina, the winners were center-left candidates Valerie Fushi and Don Davis. In Pennsylvania, the more progressive Summer Lee won an extremely close House race for a, um, a seat in Pittsburgh. And in Oregon, it appears that Jamie McLeod Skinner uh, will knock off incumbent Kurt Schrader, uh, a moderate Democrat endorsed by Joe Biden himself. Dan, what, if anything, can we learn about the preferences of Democratic voters or the direction of the Democratic Party from these races? Almost nothing, I would say. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I think it is like there's well, then this, we're moving on. Yeah, there's a tendency to try to like jam this into a narrative where it's where, you know, and we saw this in some of the 2018 primaries, which is like big blow to the Justice Democrats and progressives because they lost a bunch of primaries or you know, the party is moving to the left as we can see this, but it, the picture is more complicated, right? Candidate quality matters. Uh, you know, context for these races matter. 
And in many cases, the better candidate running on an agenda that spoke more to the moment and to the electorate of that district won. That was Summerlee in Pennsylvania. That was some of these uh, more center-left candidates in North Carolina. And you know, you look at the Kurt Schrader one. That's what read the most notable because you have an incumbent losing a primary. But Kurt Schrader didn't lose because he is ideologically moderate or not you know, a member of, you know, supported by Justice Democrats or anything like that. He lost because he sided with the pharmaceutical industry over his own constituents on the most popular issue in all of American politics, allowing Medicare to negotiate cheaper drug prices. That's why he lost. Right. And that is like that it doesn't like that is not conservative. That is stupid and corporatist and bad well, <laughs> and greedy. And that's why he lost, right? I thought that was race was very interesting because McLeod Skinner, she did not necessarily focus as much on her own progressive positions. Her she ran a race against him by saying he was the Joe Manchin of the House and voted against the American Rescue Plan. Not a popular thing to do. Uh, Criticized Democrats for impeaching Trump. Not a popular thing to do. Helped kill prescription drug reform, like you said, and build back better. One of the most unpopular things to do of any policy issue anywhere is to kill prescription drug reform. Um, and her line against him, which worked very well, was you've run so far to the right that running against you just means I'm a Democrat, right? She didn't even have to say that she's a very progressive Democrat. She's the mainstream Democrat. He's the Joe Manchin Democrat way out to the right. And that worked for her in that district. I also, one more note on the Summer Lee win. Um, Summer Lee eked out that victory in that district after so much super PAC money was dumped into that race by an APAC-affiliated super PAC that has also endorsed a bunch of pro-insurrectionist Republican candidates. And were there ads about disagreements over uh, her policy on Israel versus her candidate? No. They just decided to just uh, run a bunch of lies about her. And it was actually pretty gross what some of these super PACs are doing, these APAC super PACs. And basically what they say is, it's not like you can have a good faith disagreement about Israel and Israel policy. They're basically like, if you don't support right-wing, far-right extremist governments in Israel, then they're going to dump a bunch of money and, and lie about you on a whole bunch of other issues and say that you're not a real Democrat. And it's pretty gross. And the fact that Summer Lee was able to win that race with that much money being dumped in, uh, dumped in that district is... Um, you know, it's pretty great. I think I don't want to dismiss the idea that ideology matters to some voters. It certainly does, right? A lot of people, like we are probably some voters who will look at people's policy positions and do it. But the question is often who is going to fight for me, right? Who's going to stand up for the things I care about? And that person could be very clear, you know, and absurd, perfectly. A someone who adopts populist economics, which may make them more progressive, will have them do that. But it's just not, it's very hard to put people in boxes and make predictions about electoral outcomes, right? Because that, there's a lot happening there. And there are so, I think hopefully there's some lessons for some Democrats, Kirsten Cinema for one, from Kurt Schrader's loss about how politics has changed and what voters in your state actually want is not just the Problem Solvers Caucus, DLC, No Labels Agenda. You know, I think they will accept, as they do with Fetterman, some complex positions on some things they don't disagree with, but they want to think that you are fighting for them. And that is going to mean, in many cases, standing up against corporate interests. And that's and look, I think the Justice Democrats, um, a lot of their ads for their candidates, especially their bio ads, are outstanding. Summer Lee's is no exception. Of course, in that later in that bio ad, she lists her positions on Medicare for All and Green New Deal and stuff yep. like that, positions which we know 
outside very liberal districts do not have a, a, a majority support, at least among moderates that you need in some purple districts. But the ad starts out like, you know, I'm from she's from Braddock as well. And she's like, we made the steel that built America. And then when the rich executives left, we were the ones who suffered. Our kids got asthma. Our our people lost jobs. And now we're trying to get a movement to make sure that, you know, working people and poor people can succeed in this country. It's, a, it's just a good message and a good story. Um, and that works. I think I think I think you should not discount the power of candidate quality, the story they tell, uh, who they are, the, the coalitions they're building. Like these are all very, very important to to your candidate success as well. It's not just a uh, not just a list of policy positions. So, um, OK, when we come back, I will interview the uh, Democratic candidate for Senate in North Carolina, former Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Joining us now is the Democratic candidate for Senate in North Carolina. She's former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, who will face the Trumpy election denier Ted Budd in the midterms this November. Sherry Beasley, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. So you were a judge at just 32 years old uh, who rose to win the very top job in your state. Why did you want to become a judge? And what did that job teach you about your state and, and your country? You know, I um, uh, grew up with values of hard work and service and integrity taught to me by my mom. And um, I enjoyed the practice of law. I was a public defender first mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of knew that um, the role would be right to uh, understand and to protect and uphold the rule of law and respect the Constitution, which I know are very, very important. And um, and it was great, of course, to be a trial judge, uh, to really uh, see and uh, see the, the, the conflicts in people's lives. And people honestly often don't come to court on their best days. And then uh, to be an appellate judge on the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court and then Chief Justice, uh, which are really reviewing courts. Um, those have been um, just amazing opportunities to be in service and to really appreciate uh, that all of the decisions that people that that are made in courts impact people's everyday lives, whether they know it or not, um, and to really see uh, the plight of people uh, and to certainly understand. I've been in court almost every day for the last thirty years, uh, seeking the truth. At times, it's hardest to find, and being engaged in people's lives at times, which have been life changing for them, and frankly, often life changing for me. And uh, there really is humanity in being a judge. Uh, and there's humanity in being a senator. Mm. So we're a few weeks out from the leak of the draft Supreme Court opinion that overturns Roe v. Wade. Uh, a recent poll found that fewer than half of all Americans now trust the Supreme Court. That's the lowest share since they started asking the question. What do you say to people who feel like they can't trust our justice system anymore because it's become too politicized and in the case of the Supreme Court, too radicalized? You know, I'm certainly bothered by the leak, um, but what I don't want us to be distracted from is what we saw in that draft opinion. 
And what we saw in that draft opinion was an attack on Roe versus Wade, which for over 50 years has been the law that women have the constitutional right to privacy, uh, to protect their reproductive health, to make their own decisions with their healthcare provider without government interference. Uh, and it is a constitutional right protected by the 14th Amendment and other amendments. And uh, it's disheartening. So many people are incensed. Uh, the majority of North Carolinians uh, support the right to abortion, as do the majority of Americans. And so it's really important as I think about why this race uh, is so important. We understand what's at stake. Uh, when there's an attack on constitutional rights, we should all uh, be alarmed and we should really feel a sense of urgency around this election. I'm concerned here in North Carolina that we have a congressman, Congressman Bud, who will be my opponent in this election, who uh, is not opposed to a total ban, even in the case of incest, uh, rape, or the health of a mother. Well, there's something deeply wrong with that. And so I am running to make sure that we protect our constitutional rights uh, to stand for what's right for the people here in North Carolina. He will not put North Carolina first, and I'm going to make sure uh, to do what's right by the people of this state. So after the Women's Health Protection Act failed in the Senate a few weeks ago, President Biden said that if, if voters send a pro-choice majority to Congress, he'll be able to sign that bill into law. If you get to the Senate, would you vote to remove the filibuster so that a Democratic Senate can pass a law to guarantee uh, nationwide abortion access? You know, I certainly would, John. I, I know it's important to eliminate the filibuster. It is a tool of gridlock that has uh, hindered the passage of legislation that the majority of people in this country support. And uh, and I certainly absolutely would have supported the uh, Women's uh, Health Protection Act. Uh, we need to codify and make law uh, Roe versus Wade, um, but I, I, we, of course, the opinion we saw was a draft opinion. But, 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 but we should be deeply concerned. So, I was working on Barack Obama's campaign uh, when we won North Carolina in two thousand eight. A Democrat has not won a statewide federal race since then. What do you think happened in North Carolina? Because I thought after we won in, in two thousand eight it would sort of start acting like Virginia did after 2008 and start getting bluer. Well, we certainly had, uh, we had a wonderful Kay Hagan who uh, was successful in 2008. Yep. And, and we have been uh, really close uh, often since that period of time. And we're ready. Uh, we have done the work uh, in this campaign. We uh, are excited about all the opportunities to travel across the state to meet voters, to hear about their concerns. So many people here are struggling. Uh, mm -hmm. We're the ninth largest state in the nation, and they want to know that the next senator is going to fight for them, who's somebody's going to stand for what's right, who's going to take the values of hard work and integrity to the to the Senate. And and we're ready. I mean, we we understand it's important. This will be a tough fight. Uh, I've had tough fights before. I've never backed down. I'm not going to back down now. Um, but but people are are really concerned about the direction that they see uh, the state going into and the and this country. And uh, and so we're going to work hard for every single vote. Uh, we're investing in voters now. Um, and, and we just know that it, this this is a precipice. Uh, I know we were told in 2020 that that was the most important election of our lifetimes. But I will tell you, my late mother was granted the right to vote because of the Voting Rights Act. 
And mm. if she was here, she would tell us that every election is the most important election of our lifetimes. So we're spending a lot of time making sure that we're listening to the concerns that voters have, but also helping them to really appreciate the magnitude of this of this election and of this moment. I'm really curious what kind of concerns you're hearing. Obviously, the most difficult challenge uh, in a midterm for the party that holds the presidency is making sure that our voters don't stay home. Um, when you meet people who might be reluctant to vote this fall, don't know if their vote is worth it, don't know if they should come out to vote. What What's usually their reason and, and what do you tell them? You know, I think often people don't think their votes matter. And uh, there are so many people who have felt discounted for far too long. And it is important for them to feel a sense of empowerment. Uh, it is deeply wrong uh, when uh, state legislatures gerrymander and uh, dilute votes uh, in rural communities and in communities of color. And so helping them to understand uh, the greater picture of what's happening, uh, helping them to know that uh, they've we've not been well served here in North Carolina by our two Republican senators, uh, helping them to know that the next senator really must fight to lower costs, uh, provide access to good quality health care. In North Carolina, we do not have Medicaid expansion. Uh, we, I'm prepared to fight to lower prescription drug costs. North Carolina spends the fourth highest in the nation on prescription drugs to make sure we're bringing good paying jobs to people here in the state to fight for a strong economy. And, you know, this election isn't just about uh, today. It really is about riding the ship and making sure that uh, the next generation and generations to come have a country uh, that is right for them, that is uh, on the right keel um, and is uh, is in a place where they can take the, the gauntlet and uh, go forward and be success- successful. You were just talking about the fact that your opponent, Ted Budd, uh, supports completely criminalizing abortion, even in the case of rape, incest and the life and health of the mother. Um, what else should people know about Ted Budd? You know, um, I think actions speak louder than words. And um, Congressman Ted Budd has not uh, been the kind of person who has served uh, North Carolina well. Uh, we just had, they Congress just had a vote yesterday uh, to increase the supply of baby formula. And at a time when there's a shortage of baby formula, he voted against the legislation. It's not right for North Carolina. You know, he, this is a big military state with lots of veterans and he voted uh, not to increase uh, veteran pay. Uh, he voted against expanding uh, access to health care. Uh, he voted against uh, infrastructure legislation at a time when both of our senators here in North Carolina uh, voted for it. And so even at a time when it just makes sense to do what's right, he has chosen not to do what's right. And so when uh, people show you who they are, you better believe them. Uh, we need to make sure that we do not uh, elect somebody who will not put the state first, uh, who uh, really will put us in a very, very difficult and dangerous place, uh, particularly not just around abortion, but really that case speaks uh, heavily to civil rights that we've been fighting for for a very, very long time. And we just don't need somebody like that in, in the United States Senate. Uh, if you win, you would be the first black woman from North Carolina to serve in the U.S. Senate. Uh you could be potentially the only black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate right now. Um, I know that's probably not at the front of your mind as you're campaigning, but how how do you process that? How are you processing that as you campaign in this race? 
You know, uh, John, I uh, certainly know the importance of it. I know that representation matters. I can tell you the first time that I ever saw an African-American woman presiding over a courtroom, I was a lawyer. And that was then Judge Patricia Timmons Goodson. And I know it changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, It helped me to better envision the possibilities for my life. And so I know diversity matters in all of our institutions and in all of our government platforms. And um, and, and you're right, it's not at the forefront, but I certainly appreciate the magnitude. There are 24 women uh, in the Senate, and you're right, no African-American women in the Senate. I also know what it means for young people to be able to see and understand and envision in the very same way that I was able to, uh, the possibilities for their lives. But for all of us, regardless of race and gender, to know that we must value diversity in order for us to be the very best that we can be. Um, and, and so this race is important on a whole uh, lot of levels. And I, and I know that in addition to that very, very important uh, fact that uh, fighting for the people of the state about uh, the issues that they really, really care about. And so many people in my state are struggling. Uh, about a third of the people here earn less than $15 an hour. So there were people in North Carolina who were struggling before the pandemic, and they are certainly struggling now. They want somebody in the Senate who's going to fight for them. And that's that's really why I'm running. Chief Justice Beasley, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, uh, to join Pod Save America. And uh, good luck in the campaign ahead. Great to be here, John. Thank you. Thanks to Sherry Beasley for joining us today. Uh, Everyone have a fantastic weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you on uh, next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.